Hello and welcome to Motorsport Extra. It's Ben Evans and Keith Collentine with you. And well, to start the show, thank you so much for all the very kind and constructive feedback that we had from the, the first episode. It's been great to have so many people listening to this and really engaging with what we're doing. And, and as it's going to become traditional, Keith, since we last spoke, where have your motorsport travels taken you? Uh, well, mainly to the BT Sports Studios in Stratford. We've been talking about uh, motor racing an awful lot over there, um, but obviously big highlight of the past week or so for me has been uh, talking so much about the Indianapolis 500. I was in the booth for both days of qualifying and for the big race itself, uh, which was just 24 hours ago. We were in there. Yeah, and for me, I had a great weekend in Spa, a puncher just outside the age accepted, uh, but particularly a very, very wet day on the Sunday. And then uh, an absolute pleasure to join you to talk about the Indianapolis 500. Uh, and then the real highlight, of course, has been the Hello Kitty ride that I took today, which is pure motoring passion at, at an unnamed farm park. Yeah, bank holiday Monday, we're all uh, spending time with the kids. Exactly. Well, there's only one place to start, of course, and that is the 100th running of the Indianapolis 500. And something of a shock win for Alexander Rossi, American and a rookie, a dream story, but maybe not quite the way we expected it. It was an absolutely stunning result. And at no point, I think, did we predict Alexander Rossi as a potential winner of the race, You know, mainly because he was a rookie, like you say. Well, I'm, I'm going to have a very, very large slice of humble pie, which is that for the BT Sport coverage, we shot an extensive feature with Alexander Rossi. Our producer, Nick, was saying to me when he was leading the race at about two-thirds distance, run this feature, run this feature, he's going to figure. And I said, no, he's not. He's not. He's going to fade back with the pit stops. And then, of course, he, he came through... Uh, and took the win but I think it's probably worth Keith explaining how he came to the situation to take victory. It was a remarkable development I mean Andretti had a great setup on their cars and for most of the race Ryan Hunter Ray was the the main one of their drivers in contention he led 52 laps so he led more than a quarter of the race um, and Townsend Bell of course their guest driver was well up there as well of course we all know what happened to those two drivers they managed to tangle with each other in the pit lane um, but in a way that sort of inadvertently paved the way for Rossi um, to take this incredible win you remember we were in the, uh, the the studio booth and we were looking at the strategies and trying to figure out at what point could drivers come in and make their last pit stop and run clear to the end. We reckoned it would be about lap 168. Then uh, Takuma Sato got up in the grey at the exit of turn four, brought out the uh, safety car with just a few more laps uh, before that, that magic lap 168. So on lap 164, 19 drivers came into the pits at once. Any one of those drivers, you know, given that Alexander Rossi was one of them, could potentially have gone on to win the race. And there were even drivers who pitted later than that who ran too hard and, and had to come in and make additional pit stops. Um, but Rossi came in um, and he managed to make his fuel last to the end there. And a, a big part of the reason why he was able to do that was because Hunter Ray had, had fallen back. He was more than a lap behind. And Andretti had Hunter Ray give Rossi a slipstream to help him uh, save some fuel. That paid huge dividends in the end. I think what's really interesting as well is that there were three drivers who pitted after Rossi, Simon Pagano, Helio Castroneves and Sebastian Borde. Uh, and Borde had two laps on, on everybody. And he still couldn't make the fuel last. Uh, I, uh, one of my thoughts reflecting that overnight was, is it actually the benefit of the Formula 1 experience for Alexander Rossi in races that are very fuel limited in Formula 1? He knows how to drive with fuel economy in the way that some of the, the other guys have been in IndyCar for several years don't. It, it could well be a part of that as well and, and the benefit of the, the, the tow he got from uh, from Hunter Ray. And then obviously it came down to that final lap where he was absolutely nursing it home and he was over 40 mile an hour uh, average uh, slower than the, uh, the leaders were and he had uh, Carlos Munoz uh, bearing down on him right at the end. But I think ultimately um, the fact 
fact that he was able to put that all together came as a massive shock to everybody uh, and not least the driver himself. I mean, when he took his helmet off in victory lane, he looked absolutely thunderstruck. Uh, and what was bizarre is, I've, maybe I'm being a little bit harsh, I've never, I've always thought he's a, he's a very talented driver, a very good driver. I've never seen him as an elite caliber racer. And yesterday maybe didn't do an enormous amount to dissuade me of that in terms of his outright pace, wheel-to-wheel dicing. But I was just so impressed that he managed that fuel, drove with such a level head and consistency. There was a lot of people complaining online, going it was a damn scoop as a finish. Rossi wasn't a deserving victor, which I felt was very unfair. He he had a circumstance and he exploited it perfectly. I don't think it was a damp scoop of, of a finish at all. We've seen you know, this kind of action in IndyCar racing before. Sometimes it resolves itself in you know two drivers swapping the lead for lap after lap towards the end. We've had that the last few years in the Indy 500, uh, but sometimes it will be, you know, who can stretch that last bit of fuel out to the end, and you did not know. We didn't even say in the commentary booth, I think, until he was out of the last corner, wow, he is actually going to do this, because when the fuel goes, you know, you you come to a stop pretty quickly. Well, there were some opposing strategies. Carlos Munoz and Joseph Newgarden just decided to go all out, and they got within four seconds of the win despite an extra pit stop. And Munoz was devastated because he knew he had a really good chance to catch up. He was absolutely flying at the at the end and so was Newgarden. He was very, very close behind him as well. And I think they crossed the line uh, only covered by a few tenths of a second. So it was really, really close for second place as well. I mean, there's absolutely no question. You know, had it been a lap longer, perhaps even a mile longer, we would have had a different winner. Well, the, the fairy tale story we didn't get was James Hinchcliffe converting pole position to victory. And it almost felt as if he was a victim of circumstance, starting from pole and having such a good car underneath him. He almost had to pave the way with the race strategy, and that meant the team couldn't exploit the way the race then begun to change with the safety cars and the cautions. It particularly felt with Hinchcliffe that the way the track conditions were changing, he didn't quite have the car underneath him uh, to stay up in the thick of the uh, battle for the lead. Obviously, in the opening phases of the race, we had that terrific uh, extended exchange between him and Ryan hunter Ray uh, that was uh, absolutely thrilling, but I don't think he quite had the speed in the car in the latter phases of the race to, uh, to contend for the lead. I think the drivers who uh, might come away from that with the most to regret would be um, Elio Castroneves and Simon Pagano. They both had misfortunes of a type. Um, Pagano had um, an unsafe release penalty. And a misfire. And a misfire. And, and I think would feel quite a little bit unfortunate with what happened to, hi- to him. Uh, Elio Castroneves arguably looked in a little bit because he got one pit stop away just before uh, a caution period around about lap 150 uh, but then not long after that picked up some damage uh, when I think it was J.R. Hildebrand was overtaking him uh, and that forced him to drop back. Uh, and again I think it's a testimony actually to Rossi's achievement. He was in the thick of some ferocious dicing for 500 miles. He didn't damage the car didn't put a scratch on the car, kept it very clean and very steady and others like Castroneves couldn't quite do that. And the other to stress there though was this was his second oval race but more importantly this was his first race on a super speedway and and that kind of racing is very different to the the short track oval racing that he did at phoenix earlier in the year you know the speeds are absolutely enormous the the level of judgment required um, is incredibly demanding and it's a very very different discipline to, to what you see in Formula 1 so it, it is an extremely you know I said this actually before the race began it's a very specialised skill set uh, and it requires um, or at least we thought it required a lot of time to build up to but Alexander Rossi just completely wrecked the grading curve well despite the rigs of the super speedway actually wasn't the crash fest that maybe we'd feared early on we only really had four crashes of note which was Takuma Sato that was very minor then we had the, the coming together Mikel Lation spinning Connor Daly crashing in sympathy. Serge Karam went into the wall, probably the biggest incident of the race, but we'll start with Juan Pablo Montoya, last year's champion, the first retirement, and 
he'd been nowhere all day until that point. Hadn't really had a particularly good month of May, all things considered. Uh, qualifying, he didn't make it into the fast nine. He then had that rather silly situation on the Sunday where a garbage bag wrapped itself around his front wing and spoiled one of his qualifying efforts. Then in the race as well, you know, at first we thought, you know, Penske were, were hanging back and just not getting uh, too deep into the thick of the fighting, biding their time for the closing stages. But for Montoya, it just never came together. And we saw him come into the pits. Uh, he put quite a bit of extra front wing angle on, um, presumably to, to help him out as he tried to get through the traffic. Uh, but the upshot of that just seemed to be that it, it provoked the mid-corner oversteer um, that he just, you know, was never, ever going to catch. And you're not going to catch a spin like that at, at Indianapolis. Uh, and that was his race over. And that's the first time he's ever failed to finish the uh, 500. I don't really root for drivers as such, but there's obviously some that you want to see getting a good result. And I really wanted Sage Karam to get a good finish yesterday because I cannot imagine how difficult it is after the incident at Pocono to have then lost the sponsorship and not to have raced an IndyCar until yesterday and all of the pressure and stress that that would have brought upon him. And he was going so well. The move he made around the outside of Townsend Bell, probably it was a symptom of being out of the car for too long. But... It ended in the wall for him. I can't add anything more to that, really. It was disappointing to see. He'd started, I think, about 23rd, uh, and he crossed the line in fourth uh, just before he made that uh, attempted move around the outside of Townsend Bell. We saw all race long how difficult it was to go two abreast there. We did see a couple of drivers make it, but but only just, uh, and it really didn't pay off for Karam. I think, like you say, we were all really disappointed to see Karam's race end that way. Well, for the IndyCar drivers, there is no rest whatsoever because they're in action this weekend, Saturday and Sunday, the Detroit doubleheader on the Belle Isle Street circuit and if anything I think the the Indy 500 has actually opened up the championship somewhat. We saw different cars at the front of the field and consistently so. Yeah, the big question now is going to be whether it just returns to being the uh, the Simon Pagenaud show when we get back onto the uh, the street courses around Detroit. And of course, it's a big venue for Penske because uh, Roger Penske's got a lot invested in this uh, in this race. That's going to be a very interesting storyline this weekend. Uh, and then, of course, you've got the simple fact that, you know, just four days after running in super speedway configuration, one of the fastest races in the world, uh, they're going to be cranking on maximum downforce for the the tough, tight, narrow streets of Detroit um, and two races as well. I mean, when you've just done a 500-mile super speedway race, to go out and do two consecutive IndyCar races, don't underestimate the demand that places on the drivers. Well, I look forward to that this weekend. The other showpiece event of international motorsport, of course, over the weekend was the Monaco Grand Prix. The, the headlines are that Lewis Hamilton ended his wind drought. He scored his first victory of the season. But of course, it was a lot more complicated than that. What a feast of motor racing we had on Sunday. It's one of my favourite uh, racing weekends of the year to get the Indy 500 and the Monaco Grand Prix uh, on the same race weekend and such extremely different races as well because you have Indy 500 which is this this overdose of adrenaline and speed and, and Monaco which impresses you with its speed in a different way I mean obviously the, the speeds are much lower but within the particular confines it's um, it's such a special race and you know if you get a good race at Monaco it's just the icing on the cake because it's so fabulous to see cars going around such an incredibly tight and narrow track um, the race itself in similar vein to last year we saw the team who really should have walked to victory throw it away in the pits uh, and, and a really incredible blunder by uh, Red Bull uh, and you have to say second race in a row where Daniel Ricciardo really really should have won and but for a decision uh, made in the Red Bull garages that that was kind of what took it away from him. Well the wags on the internet were suggesting within minutes of the finish that the Red Bull team was going to be fired in favour of Toro Rosso from the uh, the next race in Canada and, and I think what was really interesting as well is that, that Daniel Ricciardo after the race was struggling to disguise his anger and he's normally one of the most amiable at least in the 
the public presentation of the drivers, which gives an indication of just how furious he was. If you didn't see it, he, he came in right lap to make the change for the tyres. He arrived at the pit box. The tyres were at the local quick fit. By the time they'd sourced them, he'd lost several seconds and, and the race was gone. But there had actually, arguably, been a, a mistake earlier on by Red Bull in putting himself in a position where he was fighting with Hamilton to begin with. And this was something else that Ricardo alluded to after the race. And it really does show you know, how well attuned the drivers are to the strategic nuances of the race. Um, Hamilton had got himself in a position to win because he'd not changed from wet weather tyres to intermediate tyres in, in this race, which started on a wet track, um, whereas Ricardo had. Now, had Ricardo stayed out, he would not necessarily have been in a situation where he could have risked losing the lead to Hamilton because Hamilton had lost a lot of time at the beginning of the race being stuck behind Nico Rosberg. So I think it wasn't just the case for, for Ricardo that he was you know, angry at the guys for not having the tyres out there, and, and that was the product of some indecision in Red Bull about what type of tyres they should have. Uh, it was also a question of how, when he'd had this 10-second lead, did he end up in a fight with Hamilton in the first place? Now, did we see a slightly different Lewis Hamilton yesterday? Because he's normally been somebody who's who's been quite aggressive with his tyres, but he made his wets last longer than most people, and he made the ultra-super-duper, incredibly soft tyre last half the race. We certainly saw a happier Lewis Hamilton on Sunday <laughs> compared to the Lewis Hamilton we saw on Saturday when he had his, his third power unit problem in a qualifying session for the fourth race uh, that we've had. Uh, so, yeah, he, he definitely cheered up a lot after that, um, and that was good to see. Um, I think it's been an underestimated part of Hamilton's game, how he's got on top of the the nuances of this designed-to-degrade era of tyres that we've got in Formula 1. Uh, I think, yeah, early on in his Formula 1 career, particularly when he was partnered with Jensen Button, because you know Button was always so kind to his tyres, um, Hamilton was looked on in that way. But I think I think he understands now, and he really does get the tyre the, the management game. Um, and he has generally had a pretty good feel. I, I seem to remember him back at uh, Monza when they had the wet race there in 2008, um, dragging a set of tyres out for quite a long time then as well, uh, and doing pretty well with it. Um, in a sense, this was a race that fell into Hamilton's lap because you know he gained one position because a team screwed up and he gained the other position because his team let his teammate let him pass it's arguably surprisingly enough surprising enough in itself but he did, as you say, you know, he, he got the job done on the tyres and he needed to do that to be in a position to win in the first place. And we should talk about Sergio Perez in third place. Oh, amazing result for Didn't Force see India. much of him on the TV, but a landmark result for the team and when they really need it for various off-track things that we can't particularly go into. And also for Sergio Perez himself, who has been somewhat overlooked, somewhat in the shadow of Nico Hülkenberg, and actually it's Perez who's pulled out that, that showpiece drive. Yeah, I, I felt a bit sorry for Hülkenberg in this one because this was Hülkenberg's 100th Grand Prix start uh, and he's still yet to get a podium. Um, and Perez in his 99th start just got his sixth. And really Hülkenberg was the one who qualified ahead uh, and it was kind of the vagaries of the strategies that ended up with, with Perez ahead because what we had a lot of in this race was drivers feeling like they were ready to uh, switch from wets to intermediates or intermediates to slicks but then getting stuck behind drivers who hadn't made those changes yet and that was what happened to Hulkenberg he dropped back into some traffic because he changed the tyres a little bit sooner uh, and Perez was a, a beneficiary of that you know again taking nothing away from, from Perez you know we say time and time again this is just how things work out sometimes but I think we have to also pick up on Hulkenberg's last lap pass on Nico Rosberg stunning piece of opportunism one of the very few clean on-track overtakes that we saw at Monaco elsewhere of course for, for Max Verstappen the honeymoon was shorter than that of Johnny Depp and Amber Heard's uh, yes it was I must admit I'm not as au fait with the pages of the uh, celebrity magazines as you are um, but yeah crashed in practice uh, crashed in qualifying crashed in the race is what my notes read here and let's not forget, he also crashed out of this race last year, so it's not a terrific record for Verstappen in Monaco. 
But keep one thing in mind, I think, um, when he was on track in the race, in those early phases, making his way up um, from the pit lane start, he, again, put on some excellent overtaking moves, was making some great progress. And I think Red Bull at this stage, uh, and certainly we, you know, we're keeping in mind how quickly Kvyat was let go, are still going to be thinking it's easier to get a fast driver to stop crashing than it is to get a, a safe driver to go quicker. Yeah, I, I agree. I think they'll 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 let this one slide. If it happens again next year, D- different different conversation. I think the the other crash that really bothered me during the race was Julian Palmer, who went off very early on, and it was mainly because of the damage that that Renault car sustained. You didn't see it. He he seemed to lose control under acceleration on the zebra crossing. The car speared left into the the barrier at quite an odd angle because it's not a place that cars normally go off, which which knocked the front section of the car loose. And then when he went further on, finished the accident at Sandovot, the whole front of the car was was ripped away, and in a way that you don't expect to see in in modern racing cars. Uh, and what it really reminded me of that you may have seen the picture. It was a, a Corsi Cliente driver in the United States, Laguna Sacra, in the 1990s Ferrari, who had a very slow accident, and he ripped the whole front of the car off. And it, it looked similar that he just went in at the wrong angle for the carbon fibre construction. Yeah, it, it was strange to see the extent of the damage to the car once it had, come stop, once it had stopped. Um, Palmer saying, I noticed that he was still getting wheel spin in fifth gear uh, when he was coming down the, uh, the, st- the curved start finish straight at Monaco and going over the, the white uh, paint at the zebra crossings. And like you say, the car had a very big initial impact. And then as it went down the barriers and then bounced off the other barrier at Sandoval, a succession of smaller impacts. I think all you can say really is they're definitely going to take a close look at how that car behaved under the impact and, and see what lessons there are to be learned. Because, you know, as we've seen, and we're going to talk about later, some of the big crashes we've seen in other categories, it's something that they take very seriously. So in terms of the championship there, Nico Rosberg leads Lewis Hamilton, 106 points to 82. The next race is in Canada in the second weekend of June. Two other single-seater races, or two other single-seater categories rather, in action at Monaco, GP2 championship. And the first race was claimed by Artem Mikhailov, and then the Baharu Matsushita won the sprint race. But again, uh, in the world of GP2, nothing is straightforward, and certainly Mikhailov winning in slightly bizarre circumstances. This was a very odd one, which initially had people wondering if Mikhailov had committed some bizarre kind of violation behind the virtual safety car. Um, Basically, to, to try and cap this as quickly as possible, uh, Norman Nato had beaten Sergei Sorokin off the line and, and led the race pretty comfortably. Um, but Markolov um, delayed his mandatory change of tyres quite a long way. And while he was doing that, we had a succession of virtual safety car periods for various different incidents. Um, and what happened was Markolov, through dint of these periods, was able to extend his lead over Nato, make his pit stop and come out ahead. Now, that obviously doesn't sound right because surely if you're throwing a virtual safety car period, everyone's got to slow down uh, and no one's going to be catching anybody. Um, but the key thing to understand is the way the virtual safety car works in GP2 is different to how it works in Formula 1. In Formula 1, the drivers are given minimum or maximum target times that they have to hit um, to ensure that nobody is getting too much closer to anybody else. In GP2, they just impose a blanket speed limit. And that means If you're going through a sector that is a particularly high-speed sector at the reduced speed, you will lose more time than another driver on the same elsewhere on a part of the track that is much slower who's sticking to the same speed limit. And it was a quirk of the timing of these virtual safety car periods that allowed Markolov to basically gain something in the order of 10 seconds over Nato, which proved to be enough for him to make the uh, the extra pit stop. I think you've got to say 
it really isn't very good that the rules work in this way, that they hand the driver such a massive advantage like that. And I felt really, really sorry for Nato uh, at the end of that race because he could not possibly have done anything more to win it. Yeah, I'm just looking at the, the autosport picture now on the podium. It looks like sort of a, a pug who's been denied a treat on the podium, Norman Nato. And so in terms of the GP2 championship then, Nato leads Markelov 49 points to 48. And the next race is another classic of the motorsport calendar and that is the Baku round on the 18th and 19th of June. We also had the Formula Renault 2 litre Euro Cup in Monaco. Sasha Fenstraz won the race um, although the safety car I think was probably classified for the podium because we only had about two and a half green flag laps but in that time we had a magnificent move for second place. Ferdinand Habsburg the inside of Max Deforni. Deforni then held on to third place despite being demoted by Dorian Boccalacci on the countback. That move was scrubbed from history so Deforni completed the podium. Sasha Frenestras, Keith, something of a street race specialist. He's had four of them in his career. He's won three. <laughs> yeah, and this one, well, this one actually only counts as half a win because they didn't hit the 75% limit. Um, so they only awarded half points. Uh, and that was very important, of course, for Lando Norris, who'd qualified on pole position, uh, was sent to the back of the grid uh, because of a technical infringement, which, according to the stewards, did not result in a performance gain. Um, but because he was down at the back and because we had so little green flag running, he wasn't able to make his way up into the points. Uh, but as half points were awarded, um, he still has just about kept his uh, lead in the championship. And half points mean that that is going to be a joy to try and commentate live on the championship deciders when we try and do the maths for that. The next action is in Monza. It's a triple header on the 2nd and 3rd of July, and that will be a very different proposition, but I'm sure thoroughly entertaining racing as well. Well, let's move on to a little bit of review of some of the news because it has been a very long 10 days in the world of motorsport and some, some really quite big stories that, that have come out. One that broke at the start of the Monaco weekend was the, the lawsuit from Jules Bianchi's parents uh, against several parties uh, surrounding the incident in Japan that ultimately led to his death. Yeah, the Bianchi family on uh, Thursday um, notified the world that they were bringing action against uh, the FIA uh, Formula One group, which of course includes Formula One management, and Bianchi's former team Borussia, which has since been taken over and is now called uh, MANA um, because of that accident in the 2014 uh, Japanese Grand Prix and then Bianchi losing his life uh, in July of last year. Um, obviously, we don't want to get into the exact specifics of, of talking about the case, um, you know, for, for obvious legal reasons. Um, I suppose all you can really say at, the, at this point is, you know, what happened was a tragedy. Uh, the Bianchi family lost uh, a brother and a son, um, and it's a terribly sad thing. This legal recourse that, that's open to them, if they, you know, choose to have, have chosen to go that way, um, is obviously something they feel is justified. And, you know, speaking as a, a parent myself, it's kind of hard to, to criticise or question that. If that's the way they feel they have to go, um, then that's for them to decide. What it means in terms of the wider motor racing world, I think, could ask some very deep questions. And it's obviously something that we're going to keep a very close eye on the developments of. Well, it's unprecedented legal ground, but what isn't unprecedented is actually that motorsport has been incredibly good learning from past tragedies, responding to it, and then improving safety standards. I can't think of any other sport which self-regulates so strongly. Uh, and that development, really, of driver safety has been amply illustrated in the European Formula 3 Championship and the British Formula 3 Championship over the past two weekends. So Zikong Lee escaped from a monumental corkscrew incident when he collided unsighted with his teammate Ryan Tavita at the Red Bull Ring. And then Amaya Vardanathan at Alton Park decided the quickest route from Old Hall to Cascades was actually to do it as a cartwheel. If you've seen that latter incident, 
it is just incredible that he walked away with basically no injury whatsoever. The car up 20 feet in the air, tumbling through the air, uh, and it really just shows how much safety stands have improved and how strong these modern cars are. And, and also, you know, he, he was a very, very lucky boy as well because, you know, the way the car landed, um, you know, obviously plays, plays a role in, in that kind of thing as well. Um, going back to the Zekong Lee crash, um, obviously there were three drivers involved in that because he went into the back of Tivita and then Pedro Pique was involved as well. And Tivita had uh, light injuries, but Zekong Lee um, has took heel fractures, um, which he's having to have surgery on, which is uh, obviously not what you want to see. But when you look at the extent of the damage to the front of his Carlin uh, Delara chassis, really quite remarkable that uh, that he was able to su- survive that incident with you know injuries comparatively lighter than we initially feared we were waiting quite a long time for um, updates on you know what his condition was and we were very worried about it at the time because you know we didn't know uh, what it was going to be but thankfully you know it, it's not as bad as we feared yeah and in a, to an extent these are incidents that have maybe been coming for the past couple of years uh, certainly the Zekong Lee incident actually wasn't a, a driving standards one Maybe Tevita could have just stopped it in the gravel rather than roll back onto the track. You could argue it either way, but the, the closer to the competition, the es- accidents being escalating, this might just provide a bit of a check on driving standards. Well, of course, Euro Formula 3 last year, we had a spate of uh, serious accidents, uh, which we were fortunate not to have you know, these type of injuries from. Uh, we had races abandoned, um, we had you know, red flags being thrown, um, and we had lots and lots of questions about whether drivers were being allowed into this category at too young an age. Uh, the FIA introduced a range of different um, restrictions on how drivers could get into Formula 3 and how long they were allowed to spend there. And like you say, a crash like this is going to serve as a bit of a wake-up call. So a couple of then big Formula 1 news lines. First of all, Red Bull extending the Renault engine deal through to 2018. So clearly all is love and lightness once more there. It's an amusing thing to uh, reflect on, um, given the amount of vitriol that was flying around until the very late stages of last year uh, and how almost begrudgingly um, Red Bull went back to the uh, Renault Power Units. But of course, in Monaco, um, Red Bull had uh, an example of the new Renault Power Unit for uh, Ricardo. Renault were running one in Magnussen's car, uh, and it seems that they are very happy with the uh, products of this. It was run in the Circuit de Catalunya test. All the drivers are going to have it um, for the Canadian Grand Prix, so they're expecting to be an awful lot more more competitive but uh, also extending that deal through to 2018. The other dimension to keep in mind here is we now have this uh, very complicated new set of rules about engine supply and the FIA for the first time uh, have taken it upon themselves to try to force engine manufacturers to supply engines to teams so that no teams end up without an engine which was something that might have happened to Red Bull at the end of last year. This deal obviously means that uh, you know Red Bull and Renault will be together for this length of time. And I think one party that might be particularly pleased to see it is Honda because they are averse to supplying engines to another team at the moment. They're very much prioritizing making their current power unit competitive. So unless we see a situation where a new team comes into Formula One, which at this stage is unlikely to happen before 2018 anyway, Honda are in the clear as far as that concerns. So a potential political problem has potentially been averted. Of course, any teams that do have a shortfall, they're very welcome to borrow a two-litre Volvo with 107,000 miles on the clock, as long as they give it back to me by Monday morning. The, the other story then was Monza has got proposals to change its classic layout. And this is a story you broke, Keith. I was really interested to see this. I got a tip from uh, a reader that this had been posted. And I've been in contact with uh, Jano Zafeli, who's the designer behind this. Obviously, Monza is looking at changing its layout to ensure that it can continue to host motorbike racing. But this obviously will have an impact on whether it's also able to continue hosting Formula One because it needs to make sure that the layout is suitable for both categories. 
So the proposal that they've put in place is actually getting rid of the retrofilio chicane. Now, they've had a chicane at the, on that part of the track since 1971 to slow the cars before they reach the Curva Grande. Now, the reason they're going to do that is because they're going to divert the cars away from the Curva Grande. Now, that's a controversial uh, point that some people aren't so keen on. I have to say, having had a, a bit of a close look at the uh, diagrams and, and with some of the stuff that, that's been sent through to me, I think it looks really like quite an elegant solution. The retrofilio chicane that they've had down there since 2000 is very, very slow. And frankly, I think it probably causes as many problems as it solves. Yeah, I, I'm in two minds about this because my, my worry is it's going to actually ruin the racing at Monza because into the retrofilio, great overtaking opportunity. But more importantly, out of the retrofilio through the Curva Grande to the second chicane is, is where you see so much overtaking and some really great racing. And I'm worried we're going to lose that. Yeah, you do. But you also see, I think, the potential for some nasty crashes down at the Retifilo just because they're bringing the cars down from such a high speed to such a low speed. Well, it's not the first time Monza has considered things. Whether or not they go through with it will remain to be seen because I, when I was there last year, I picked up in the bookshop a, a document called Monza 2, which was the planning permission proposal for an extension to the Monza circuit in the mid-1970s, basically by adding a flat high-speed oval to the lap to double its lap length to, to make sure it kept Formula 1 then. And hadn't they already done that once before by building the original oval? Exactly, and, and that, that, that went nowhere. So we'll see what happens. The, the final piece of news this week is we had a provisional calendar for the FIA Formula E Championship for Season 3, and the bigger mission was no London round, and almost concurrent to that calendar coming out was then uh, a statement from lawyers which confirmed that agreement had been reached between local residents, Wandsworth Council and Formula E, to go ahead with the Battersea Park rounds on the 2nd and 3rd of July this year. Very vague statement. Reading between the lines, it's quite easy to see that probably A has led to B. Yeah, I don't think that's too cynical a conclusion to draw. Um, but that was a deal that absolutely had to happen because without it, the, the second season of Formula E had finished. Um, as it is, you know, we will now go on, we'll have these two races in Battersea Park and, uh, and we'll decide uh, who the champion's going to be. And that's going to be uh, very exciting to see. More about the... Uh, proposals for the season three calendar um it really does seem to uh, involve an awfully high degree of turnover i mean the beijing um season opener has gone various new rounds have been proposed but these are all you know to be announced to be confirmed we don't know what the layouts are going to be um we've had a lot of flux in the calendar um in formula e this year it would be a, a great shame if we we're going to next year and have yet more possibly even more of that happening again I mean, my, my, my reflections are firstly, there's a lot to be read in to the fact that cities that have hosted races are dropping away from it. I think secondly, it's not so much a calendar as at times a list of cities where Formula E would like to race. And it's part of me, the ones if I bumped into Alejandro Agag at Watford Gap Services and said, do you want to race here? It would appear on the next iteration of the calendar. So you're suggesting they should have a race around Watford Gap Services? Absolutely. So that is it for the news for this week. Let's have a little look ahead to next weekend. Slightly quieter weekend of action. Uh, but of course, Keith, you're going to be on duty at least some of the time for the IndyCar Duel in Detroit. I am going to be doing the filling commentary for the second of the two uh, Duel in Detroit races on uh, Sunday evening. So I'm looking forward to seeing how many of the chassis um, <laughs> survive unscathed from the first race and make it back for uh, another punishing round around Detroit. Meanwhile, I'm off to Paul Ricard for the Euro Formula Open and International GT Open. And I think it's been really interesting start to both seasons for, for those categories. In the Euro Formula Open, 
We've seen the win split between Jack Aitken and Leonardo Pulcini. And some terrific racing between the pair of them at Spa a couple of weeks ago. Absolutely. And they've, they've been the class of the field. Jack Aitken said in Estoril, this is absolutely one-off. Then he turned up in Spa. I would be astonished if he's not on the entry list for Paul Ricard because he senses a chance of getting the title. In the International GT Open, we, we've we had a really, really open start to the season. Sean Balfe and Phil Keane are leading the championship, but they've got essentially works or semi-works McLarens, semi-works BMW snapping their heels. And in Paul Ricard, and this is a reason to watch alone, we've got a special Lamborghini entry, Andrea Caldarelli and Vitonio, Vitantonio Liuzzi. Oh, the Liuzzi's racing. Excellent. So that is going to be awesome. Should say now, as an advance warning, if I get distracted during commentary, at Paul Ricard, the commentary boxes are above the pit garages and they look out onto the private airstrip, which has built, been built at Paul Ricard, which is why it's such a popular testing venue. There is a gentleman there who has a toy MiG, the Russian fighter, and he generally takes up for a play or two during the course of the weekend. Where Keith and I won't be this weekend is at the Lausitz ring and the DTM returns there. And we've also got the British Touring Car Championship in action at Alton Park, which very full grid in the BTCC this year. But actually, the Alton Park round sometimes comes in for criticism for, for not enough overtaking. Well, I think when they tried the experiment with uh, running the longer classic uh, layout of the Alton Park circuit recently, it didn't work so well. Uh, and of course, it is one of the narrower tracks as well. Uh, but you will never, ever in a month of Sundays get me saying a negative word about it because uh, it's my home track from uh, back when I lived up in Cheshire. Uh, and I absolutely love it to bits. You're a very proud West Yorkshireman, and we salute you for that. Well, <laughs> Speechless with rage, then. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'd love once more to get your feedback on Motorsport Extra, what you'd like to hear, maybe what you'd not like to hear so, so much of. So please do get in touch with Keith and I on Twitter, at Ben Commentator, at Keith Collentine is the way to do so. And also, when we record again in a couple of weeks' time, we'd love to have some of your questions. So do tweet us with questions that you'd like to pick up in the podcast, because we want you to be part of this show as well. So anything you'd like to hear us discuss, then, then do get in touch. We'll, we'll make sure we include it next time around. So thanks very much for joining us for Motorsport Extra. It's been a momentous weekend of motor racing. It's been a fantastic start to the season and we've got a busy weekend ahead of us and we'll be talking to you again very, very soon.